So I'm a very empowered individual. No matter what I do, how much I fail, how much I succeed, I feel I can do anything. Like I actually feel that right now. And that's not ego. That's not a cockiness. That's just saying, I know a decent amount. I don't know a lot, but I'm not scared to bring people and experience to fill that up, to get something done if I absolutely believe in it. Welcome to the Speak as a Leader podcast, where you learn how to speak fearlessly on stage, on camera, and in person. I'm Nasheen, a leadership communications coach from the Fortune 500 world. And on Speak as a Leader, I talk to leaders from corporate giants like Amazon and Google to startup founders, visionaries, TEDx speakers, and even leaders who have worked at the Pentagon. You will get to know how these leaders learned the art and science of speaking fearlessly on any stage. Let's get started. Naveen Goyal has pivoted big time in life. He started his career in medicine and he was a medical director at a hospital before becoming an entrepreneur and co-founding a healthcare company. But then... He started investing into companies and he turned into a venture capitalist. Now he has his own VC firm and he's building his brand on LinkedIn and spending a lot of time speaking in a lot of rooms. That's why I was interested in speaking to Naveen about his journey from silence to finding and owning his voice as a venture capitalist, founder and personal brand. Let's go. Thank you so much for joining us on Speak as a Leader. I am really excited to welcome you to the show because you've had a really, really fascinating background. And I really want to hear all about it. And I want to hear your journey of learning to speak as a leader and finding your voice. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on here. And I love your energy and your conversations you have with people. So I'm excited to be here. Thank you. So kind. Thank you. So let's get started right away talking about this great journey that you've had from the world of medicine to the world of VC funding. So how did that happen? Tell us a bit about how you started and how you made this great pivot in your life and where you are now. Yeah. So first of all, this wasn't the plan, which I think is uh, what I embrace every day now. I wanted to be a physician for a long time. Not too unusual for an Indian, Indian American, grew up in the States all my life. Um, Usually it's, you know, doctor, engineer, maybe lawyer. And uh, fortunately, I loved science. I wanted to be a physician, wanted to help people. It was aspirational uh, and it wasn't easy to get there. Um, I like to say that because there's a lot of people around me that I feel like didn't study as much as me, but did so much better. So I was, you know, working my tail off. Uh, became a physician, um, specifically an anesthesiologist. It was the dream job, you know, everything I wanted, great people, great cases for anesthesiology, great hospital system. Uh, and I thought that was good. Um, and and then life happens and, you know, the learning curve goes a little bit more flat and the desire to learn more and explore more kind of started like slowing down. And I started looking around, I started reading Um, Yes, at the age of 30, I started reading leisure books. Um, My parents had told me to read and do all this when I was younger, and I only read what I needed to for school. So I discovered why people were so into books at the age of 30. 
And I went with a little bit of fiction, ended up a lot into nonfiction, into the business world, entrepreneurship, leadership, and really nerded out on all these great stories uh, and what people were doing to jump to fulfill a passion or a purpose. And in doing that, uh, I was also starting to invest. I was catching up on some finances after a long training period and was uh, investing into real estate, into startups. I was really just a kid in a candy store. And so with investing, with learning about entrepreneurship, ended up starting my first company in 2014 called SmileMD, now known as Offer Health, which is a mobile anesthesia company which enables procedures in offices. You dipped your toes in yep. the world of entrepreneurship and the world of VC funding. You started the first company. I started, uh, co-founded the first venture with two other close friends who are also anesthesiologists. We knew the business of anesthesia in the sense of servicing anesthesia and providing it. But everything around that from the marketing, sales, you know, business 101, we did not know anything. And so I was probably a little bit more assertive of putting myself out there and trying to learn from other people, trying to learn from books, trying to talk to experience and learn experience. And slowly and slowly, I was building a great network. We were getting a lot of help for the company, but also I was exposed to all these entrepreneurs who also knew their craft, who were also doing things that they cared for on a full-time basis. They left mm. places of comfort mm. to pursue a higher purpose or passion. But what they were looking for is capital. And they said, I know what I need to do. I actually have customers. I have this, I have that, but I need money, I, you know, capital to grow this business. And so I'm searching for capital and investors and all these things. And as I'm an angel investor now, I'm also an entrepreneur I'm around a lot of people who know that interest is there. I ended up connecting some people around me who were interested in the world I was investing in with the people who needed money. And eventually I became a connector, eventually started an angel fund in 2015, which investors could invest money in a fund. And I, along with my co-founder, would screen, find, and invest in companies and help them grow. Money coming from an individual, corporations, family offices, industries, you name it, right? They put money into opportunities or industries or with teams of fund managers, et cetera, that deploy capital. And the goal many times is to make money or invest in the latest innovation in their industry, et cetera. Well, what if we use all that capital to serve those purposes, to make money, to uh, create or invest in innovation for their space so they can be relevant or at least have a piece of relevancy as they move forward. But what if it was also aligned with your values? And so yeah. being a physician and at the core, I care for people. And I, I studied really hard to take care of people. I was learning about all these other people that play a role in our society, how they contribute to people's health, how they contribute to the advancement mm -hmm. of people and kindness and all these good things that we want, why can we not do that in a space where money is so powerful? Now, if you add that intention to a powerful vehicle, what can't you do? How can you impact the world positively? And so that's where I really look at everything as a holistic view of not just making money. Yes, my investors will make money, but my investors can also be 
at peace, knowing that that money is making money off of a purpose that's serving society in a positive manner. That alignment with your values is so essential. And one of the reasons why I also really identified with your journey was because of these pivots that I've also had in my life. And I love that you already made a connection between the things that you'll learn as a physician and what you carry with you now. Definitely one of the things that are, that is super essential, I feel, when you're moving from one microcosm to another, because otherwise you feel a little bit lost. You feel like you're starting over and what you did before in the past was kind of a waste. And now you're just starting over with nothing. So creating those connections between things that you learned, your skill set, your values, what you offer to the world in your previous work experience and taking it with you to a completely new domain is, is really essential. Yeah. So something interesting that also happens is because it happened to me, I'm sure it happened to you, is that we moved from places. So I was in the corporate world, right? I was in Procter & Gamble for five years where I didn't need to be super visible outside of the company, where I was getting a paycheck and I had to really focus on excelling within the company, but creating a brand for myself outside wasn't important, wasn't urgent. So moving from a world like that, where personal branding wasn't a big thing, to now where I coach and I build my business digitally and I need to be super visible. I need to make an effort to reach out to strangers through my voice, which I feel like this is probably a journey that you went through as well from being a physician and focusing exactly on the job to being in a world where you need to be super visible. So tell me a little about that, about that journey. Yeah. And, and that's a great transition because I think those things happen step by step. It's not this jump because sometimes people ask me that uh, a question along those lines of, hey, you were doing this. I was inside an operating room with a mask on and the only person that was awake, I put to sleep. So I had no one to talk to. Right. And I'm a social person and I get energy from other people. So I'm like, wait, what's going on? And now I crave energy and people. And so I'm out there. So I've actually been that personality, but you know, it was a step-by-step thing of starting to write some, you know, thought thoughts and and share some experiences on LinkedIn. I've, I've been on LinkedIn for a while now. I don't know when exactly I I started, but it's been several years. And slowly and slowly, I got more comfortable. And, and you know, when we're talking about putting yourself out there, and we're talking about putting your fo- first thought or post out there. It, it's scary. And, you, you know, you, you, you do put yourself out there and you're like, you're going to judge by how many people engage or all these kind of things. We put a lot of pressure on ourselves. But eventually this becomes an exercise, no different from journaling. And so writing down your thoughts and processing it and saying, huh, that itself is therapeutic. And it's actually why I started writing these posts, because it was therapeutic. What I probably had is also a couple of screws loose was I, where I wasn't too self-conscious so I'm a very empowered individual is what I like to tell people, no matter what I do, how much I fail, how much I succeed, I'm a very empowered person. And what that means for myself and what I believe for others is I feel I can do anything like I actually feel that right now. And that's not ego. That's not a cockiness. That's just saying, I know a decent amount. I don't know a lot, 
but I'm not scared to bring people and experience to fill that up, to get something done if I absolutely believe in it. That is everything for me. And that's what I'm trying to teach my daughters. That's what I try to teach people I talk to who are way smarter than me, can do way more than me, but don't feel that empowerment. So some Mm -hmm. of my goals is to, to help nurture dignity and empowerment in everybody. That sense of empowerment is so important because it really stems from how we're brought up, the environment that we're used to, the kind of conditioning we get, how much agency we feel like we have in our own lives. And if you feel like you don't have enough agency, you're always going to be in this state of either desperation, helplessness, stress. It doesn't really foster this sense of achievement. Even even when you achieve big things, then you end up feeling like, oh, that was a fluke or, oh my God, I had to work so hard to get there. Now I have to work even harder to get to the next one. And I'm just not prepared. And you're just never really in that state of feeling like you're in control and feeling in control is so essential to making good things happen. You've also been speaking a lot in, in many rooms on in many platforms to many different audiences. You're in this world of connecting people. You're in this world of evaluating viable options for investment. What was that transition like from specializing in a specific world where you're mostly speaking about one thing and probably not to big audiences to speaking to big audiences all the time and switching things up, changing the way that you speak, changing the context, changing the the content. Did you have a, a transition there? Was it easy? Was it rough? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually reflect on that a lot because in the medical world, let's say in uh, as in residency training as a physician and then becoming a physician, you do do presentations, you do them at conferences, et cetera, mm-hmm. but it's over more scientific material or, or, or sources of expertise. Mm-hmm. And at least for me personally, I don't know if everyone would agree, but in retrospect, it wasn't something I was that passionate about. I was interested. I liked it a lot. But when I speak now, just like when I'm speaking to you right now, I have a different level of energy because I feel so strongly about it. For for me to break out of that career and then to jump into this new world, you have to feel so strongly about it. I'm so passionate mm-hmm. about entrepreneurship. I think it's productive creativity is what I call it, right? You can be creative and you focus that into productivity. I did realize that the energy you bring, how you talk about it, which is what uh, a lot of the things that you speak about are so crucial. It's not really, at, we, we put so much emphasis on the content of what we're going to say. So if I have a paragraph mm-hmm. I would be focused on making sure I read that paragraph and can answer the questions. Now I'm like, am I really delivering what's in that paragraph in a simple and effective conversational manner? That is so effective as a strategy because if the audience gets the feeling that you're really relating to them, that you're there for them, that you really care that they understand what you're saying, that they take action. If they really, really feel that through the words that you're saying and through the way that you're saying them, then they will remember you. They will remember the presentation. They will walk away richer in some way. 
And that's really ultimately what you want. So I'm curious about the first big presentation that you made in, especially in this new context, in this new world, was there a time that you remember where you made a first big presentation? And do you remember how you were feeling at the time? What was it like? Yeah, um, I've done a good amount, but I do remember a specific presentation I did in Chicago early on where I felt it. It was maybe about 50 people. It wasn't a huge um, place, but I liked it because I could see everybody and I was mm-hmm. looking around and I feel like I was connecting with people and that gave me more energy. And as I was telling my story, um, I could just feel the engagement. And then there was plenty of questions afterwards. And then afterwards got some feedback, you know, in the end, I spoke about my story. I spoke about why I shifted, what I saw as the opportunity, right? Mm-hmm. That's not scientific. That's not a lot of data. That's not a lot of stats. It's just talking about how I had expectations. They weren't being met, at least for myself, because we're constantly changing them for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so I made some steps and here I am. And what people think is a giant leap is really a bunch of small steps and we can all take those steps. So it kind of reinforced that I don't need to talk about anything fancy or specifically venture and all these stats, which I do include sometimes here and there. A lot of it is humanizing that I have done this and now I want to do this. What do you want to do? I love that additional benefit of storytelling that you just outlined. I didn't think of it that way. Of course, storytelling as a tool is really powerful, but it has this additional benefit that you just touched upon that it also makes you more confident of your message because at the end of the day, it's your story. You know it because you lived it. So yes. It actually makes you a bit more assertive just by default. I I love this part about taking your personal story and making it front and center in terms of your personal brand. It's definitely not something that comes naturally to a lot of people. When I did my first TEDx talk, for example, it was intensely personal. It had almost nothing to do with my business because... I felt like the story that I was talking about was a story that I had to tell. There was no other way for me to do a TEDx talk and not talk about that the big story of my life. And I feel like it's similar for you where the shift from being a physician to being a venture capitalist is the big story of your life. It's it's, it's one of the, the things that take precedence front and center. And you want people to associate you with that story. So I'm interested in knowing where you felt that you had become a thought leader, that you had become an influencer in the VC industry. And what is that like? Because that is a world that is very interesting for a lot of people to know about. Yeah. So I will say that I'm still absorbing a lot of those words that you use, thought leader, (laughs) influencer, all these kind of things. But I will say that when I was talking earlier about the holistic view of investing, I didn't feel like the world was ready to hear it or it was kind of like this, okay, okay. But today I feel very differently. And I don't know if it's because the world has shifted a little bit, people are more open or because I've been doing this for several years now and I have some track record and and maybe a little bit of a larger stage, but people are listening, they're aligning and they're investing in that value prop. You know, there's, there's banks and family offices and corporations now that I speak to who say, yes, I do care about that. Yes, I was going to invest this money, but you're telling me to think a little bit 
of what my values are and where I'm putting this capital on behalf of this company or where the wealth has been generated. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that's like the energy I want. I'm like, wow, I've connected with you. People who have been investing a lot of money for a long time in different venues are now saying, Naveen, this makes total sense. And I can see by your actions over the last several years, you're not just saying this, this is what you've been living. You hinted at something really interesting in that journey where you said that people say, oh, you're not just saying this, you're living it. I feel like when you started on this, there must have been this feeling of knowing that people come into these kinds of conversations with a lot of biases and judgments because people have been talking about doing good for a while. But it's not always the truth. Sometimes it's just like greenwashing. I don't know if there's an equivalent term for that in the VC world. And people have become disillusioned and disenchanted. So were there specific things that you said that brought credibility to the conversations that you were having? I don't think it was something I said. I think time has helped me because... If one thing I could, you know, if I could tell my younger self, I was probably saying something similar. Now, I probably have more connections and more alignment of how I think and process and communicate it. But I was saying the same thing five years ago. But I think there were people on the sidelines that said, that makes sense. But I still have to to see what happens because there are a lot of people who market themselves or say a story that's not consistent with their actions. And I'll tell you right now, I live by that. I'm very... Um, I'm very strict with myself about that. And so when mm-hmm. I speak something, I have to act on it. Otherwise, I won't say it. And I get that mm-hmm. all the time, by the way, where people are like, you know, I spoke to some folks and they said that what you were saying, uh, you know, you've been practicing. And I'm like, awesome. I'm like, talk to more people. I'm like, tell more people <laughs> to talk to more people. <laughs> because that's where I'm at right now. And um, it, it wasn't always easy, but it's great to be at, here at this moment because of that time. I love that attitude. It's exactly what I practice and what I aspire to practice that I am not too faced. And that's really important to me. And I feel like that's very important to you as well, that no matter who you talk to about me, they would say that, yeah, Nasheen's like this. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that sounds, that sounds about right. That's also based on my conversations with her and really maintaining that consistent brand, that consistent personality, even as you're adapting to different rooms and scenarios, that's really the balance that I love. And I I feel like that's the balance that I see in you as well. So when you're preparing for a big presentation and the stakes are high, walk us through your process, because a lot of people are very interested in knowing how high performers go through this process of preparing for a talk or for a presentation where they're feeling nervous or where the stakes are high and they have to absolutely nail it. And by the way, um, you know, I'm, I'm an open book on things and I still get nervous. Um, I still don't know what level of nervousness or anxiety is going to show up when I jump on a stage or, or go somewhere uh, in, a, in a public setting, which is interesting still. I think that's the world of psychology and being a human, you you know, we are constantly changing. So we cannot be 100% prepared. However, mm-hmm. something that seems like such common sense, and I've been guilty of this, 
where I have a presentation and I just simply haven't practiced it enough. I've made the slides or I've gotten the slides made. I'm looking at them. I'm like, yeah, I'm good. Then I go up and it just doesn't spin out smoothly. And I can't, I'm focusing on the content versus focusing on the delivery. Mm -hmm. So I've been a little bit better about being disciplined and make myself in a boring fashion by myself, present it over and over. That is the best preparation that you can do for yourself. At least for me, mm. you will, you would probably have thoughts on that, but that's what I've found is very helpful to myself. Oh, absolutely. I love that you started off with a state that a lot of people can identify with that oh, I'm going to focus on my slides, I'm going to focus on my content, my research, and I'll just I'll just wing the delivery somehow. And it never goes as smoothly as it could have if you had taken the time to rehearse and prepare. What people really forget is that in that boardroom, in that conference room, delivery is at least 50% of the whole experience. In fact, I would even venture to say that it's 70% a lot of the times, because if you're not delivering something with impact, if people are not listening to you, then your content could be mind blowing and people won't actually read it. They won't pay attention. This is the story, unfortunately, of a lot of great minds in history that just didn't know how to present their ideas well. I mean, Nikola Tesla is one of the great minds that come to mind. We're still in an age where we're applying the ideas this man had. He was such a genius and he had no interest in learning how to present his ideas well. And people stole his ideas and took credit for them. And he he died in poverty. And it's a very, very heartbreaking mm -hmm. story. So it's amazing that you talked about how you are working on your delivery and you realize that you probably have a lot of natural talent, which I think you talked about realizing early on as well. You have this, this need and this ability to connect with people and to be extroverted. And you have a lot of these natural gifts that can translate really well on a stage. But if you don't polish them, then they're always, you know, diamonds in the rough and you make the situation more unpredictable that way. So putting yourself back in control means practicing and rehearsing. So absolutely, I love that strategy and it really works to to create that impact. Yeah. And, and the other thing that many of us don't realize is it's not just about us. It's also about making and helping the audience be feel safe enough to receive what you're saying. And I've mm. been using safety a lot lately because it really when it comes to environments, sometimes there's big guards up, whether you're in a business meeting or an audience, you won't want to listen because of various reasons. So you also have to give an energy of, hey, we're just talking. I hope you are in the receiving mode of learning something that I have to contribute to that you're spending your valuable time on. So how do, how do you how do you prepare for that? And so what number one is is being prepared to deliver that. But number mm -hmm. two is being so prepared where you're able to think about that. You're not thinking about the content. You're not thinking about every word you're saying. You're looking around, you're trying to connect, you're trying to maybe add a little humor to let the guard down. So mm -hmm. everyone is receiving that a little bit deeply or deeper. So when they leave again, hopefully they leave with something of value that's longer lasting. That's exactly how the magic happens. I think in every room, in every on every stage, because 
you can't predict how people are going to receive your message. And that's actually what you should be focusing on when you're in that room, not focusing on the content. The content you should know like the back of your hand. You should be able to present it backwards, without slides, in the dark, in your sleep. You should just be able to, to, to spin it out and not worry about, oh, did I get that stat right? Oh, was that was that correct? Oh, let me go back a slide. Oh, I missed was a slide. I don't know what to do now. So being in complete control and, and having this command over your content and then using the time and the space in the actual moment when you're live to focus on the audience is really how you can create those conversations that you want to create. So is there a special way that you gauge the interest of the audience. Tell me a little about what's going on in your mind as you're speaking these words and these people are looking at you with expectant eyes. How are you judging how interested they are in what you're saying? What I've noticed is if I'm in a room of people, you naturally tend to stay more focused on people you are connecting with, who are, are receiving mm-hmm. it, who are nodding and, and mm-hmm. just looking engaged or look relaxed versus kind of, you know, there's some folks that look very stoic and just kind of not being phased by you at all. I, yeah. I can't receive any energy back. I don't know if I'm breaking through to you, but you're definitely not giving me reassurance to keep going. So I'm going to find someone, oh, you over there, you seem to be nodding and getting into it. I tend to focus on that. Now, I think that you would know better. The art of it is not to focus just on one section because they're giving you love, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's important as a speaker, we're human too. We need that energy. We're also a little nervous. We're trying to deliver something of value. So I think I, you know, you end up looking for people who are receiving your message. And I think if you can pivot back and forth for a while, that might get you through in a, in a positive manner, in a broad, broad way. I love that. Absolutely. That's exactly how I think about it too. Because as a speaker in any room, you are the giver of energy and you are also the ceiling, the energy ceiling. The audience will either rise to your level of energy or they'll sink to it. And they will always be, there will always be a disconnect because you are the one who has to bring in the most amount of energy. And then people feel a little bit less shy, a little bit more empowered to engage and to participate as the presentation goes on. And this exchange of energy that you're talking about is absolutely essential that as a speaker, you're actually receiving energy from the the positive faces, the smiling faces, the nodding heads. And then you're giving energy back to the ones that are stoic, to the ones that are not engaging with you because you're reassuring them with your energy, with your eye contact, with your smile that it's okay. You don't necessarily need to participate, but I am here to also connect with you. And that's important for me. I am not just here as a deliverer of this PowerPoint. I am here to connect with you. I want to talk a little bit about the Q&A session. I have a feeling that in the kinds of presentations you make, there are a lot of questions because you're asking people to part with their money at the end of the day. That is not something people do easily, even if you're talking about it in the business context, in an organizational context, because the people that you're talking to are ultimately the gatekeepers and they're the ones responsible for answering to their superiors. How do you handle difficult questions? Yeah, first of all, I think uh, saying I don't know is powerful um, or I, I I can't answer that at the moment. I really have to think about 
Um, I really want to think about that before I can answer your question. That's that's just a small, you know, quick thing that you have to be comfortable with because it, then it takes the stress off of being superhuman. Mm-hmm. We're human. I'm a person in this industry. Um, uh, you know, I don't like the word expert, so I don't, don't use it. Uh, I've been working in this um, field for a while. I've put mm-hmm. my own money in. I've put my time. I've put my profession and career into this industry. So I want to communicate that. Um, so when people say, hey, I have a lot of money, why would I invest in you? Well, well tell me, what, what, what do you usually do with your money? Oh, I invested in this bigger firm. Okay, what's this bigger firm about? And, and, and I start just kind of unpeeling what they know and what they don't know. And so all I say is there still might be things you don't know, but let me tell you what we're thinking about. And with these unknowns, this is what we're doing in our own way to help mitigate risk. And, you know, and in this world, we call, talk about mitigate risk. And I'll mm-hmm. tell you the philosophy that we have at our firm of loud capital being active and involved investors, that is a way to mitigate risk. And what that is, is being interpersonal and, and building relationship and trust with people. So when there are problems or opportunities or adversity that arise, they call us, they call me because they're comfortable because I'm not your traditional investor. That's kind of this, um, you know, I'm on a different side of the table or in a higher position and I mm-hmm. gave you money and you owe me. This is more of a, I'm sitting on, you know, on a bench next to you and we're molding the clay together in the middle of the table. And so it's really look at my relationship skills. And that's what I'm translating with money and capital and time with founders. Saying you don't know something when you don't know something. That is such an essential thing. And I love that you started with that because when we're young and inexperienced, you have this desire to answer every question, to never say you don't know something. I've had that. I've seen people in that mindset where, I've had to really explain to them, it's okay. You don't need to make something up on the spot or you don't need to transmit inaccurate information. That's so much worse than saying that you don't know because then it will undermine your credibility because the one thing you're building through all these conversations is trust and credibility. And it's really difficult to build that when you're so concerned about having an answer all the time on the spot. So actually being comfortable with saying you don't know and knowing that that is not a reflection of yourself and your experience and your expertise, because you do have those answers to the things that you know. Talking about the message, I found the part that you talked about mitigation of risk as speaking the language of the investors. Probably wouldn't say that is your mission because you explained your mission to me earlier on in the conversation. You didn't use those words. That's not your goal, but in the right context, when speaking to the right audience, you use those words to connect with them so that they understand that that is something you can bring to them. Would you say that learning this adaptability was probably a a journey that you had to take? Like you can't say the same thing to different people if you want to achieve the right results. And how do you choose? How do you choose the right messages? When in doubt, go simple. And so what mm-hmm. you said about, you know, it's, it's, it's great that you can say, I don't know, right? Because as when you were younger or, you know, less experienced, let's say, it was this, oh my gosh, you have to know everything. So number one, we need to unlearn everything we've learned. Mm-hmm. And 
the ability to be confident while not knowing, right? So I don't know and saying it confidently, but the fact is just because I don't know, it doesn't mean I can't find out or it doesn't mean that someone else on my team won't know. It doesn't mean it's gonna be ignored. I just don't know right now. And instead of faking it and being silly and, and mm. trying to sound smart, I already know that's gonna lose trust with you because you're gonna look right through me. Now, maybe it's because where I am at the moment but I no longer feel like someone's going to say that dude's dumb. That dude doesn't know anything. <laughs> but I think the ability to talk to different audiences in different industries is something that I've embraced being an empowered individual. And so I can speak anesthesiology in a very scientific and granular aspect. And when I was starting to talk about business and investments, I grew that vocabulary and understanding over time. And so initially I was talking, I mean, I wish I could have recorded some of my conversations and, and, and meetings. It was probably very different. But over time, I've made all these connections, and it's really about relating to people. And since most people don't talk in this high specialized space or high specialized you know, vocabulary, mm -hmm. make it simple. 12-year-old kid. Everyone's a 12-year-old kid. How do you speak to them? There is that balance, I think, of using the right amount of industry jargon that give that signal that you're an insider, that you know what you're talking about, that you have experience, yeah. and then still being able to take these complex, complex concepts and keeping them simple. And I really think that ratio is what a lot of people that are really on the inside, that have a lot of experience, get wrong. Because people have this curse of knowledge and they constantly find themselves going deeper and explaining like the fifth or the sec uh, seventh or the 22nd step to something when someone else is on the second step and you haven't taken them through that journey with you, you've just jumped into, okay, let's talk business. I'm here for this. These are the numbers. And what do you think? Okay. All right. Let me get back to you on that. <laughs> That's the only response <laughs> you would get. So really creating that, that balance so that people understand that, yes, you are an insider. And at the same time that you're talking to them like a human is, is so <laughs> essential. What I'm really also interested in knowing is that were there specific speaking mannerisms that you adopted very intentionally? The adding a little bit of humor, mm -hmm. making fun of myself, you know, making sure there's humility in the room allows for a greater connection, uh, especially when I'm, when I'm doing a talk or when I'm coming in with and speaking about background or if they already know my background, the most important thing is to let them know that I'm just, I'm just another dude talking to you right now and that's important. And now let's have a conversation. Just making sure that I'm not too buttoned up, too stiff, that I'm kind mm -hmm. of just relaxed and, and this is, this is going to be fun. Um, so maybe, maybe some of those, I actually haven't reflected a lot on mannerisms, but I think, I mean, this is how I talk. If I'm talking to you at a dinner right now, uh, this is how I'm talking. You know, my wife is probably really tired of it, but this is how I talk in public. This is how I talk in meetings. So <laughs> that's great. Humor is a great way to put people at ease and to make that connection with you. And it's oftentimes misunderstood. People think humor is telling knock-knock jokes or making people laugh about something very 
in a very traditional sense of the word, but you're not. You're actually just diffusing the tension. And if you get a little chuckle or if you get a little smile, that's a win. And I love that safety has been this this thread that we've pulled, pulled through this conversation, right? We started with being more in control and empowering others. So really making them feel safe and making them feel heard all the way to mitigating risk with the 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 VCs with the with your your audience and then going to the the part where you're making people feel safe through your humor and saying it's okay I'm just human I'm not another dude that is talking to you and I'm here to relate to you this is who I am and let's talk so it's a really great value to have it's not just for you that feeling of security is something that you bring to the conversation that you want people to feel. So thank you for that. That's a great way to end our conversation. <laughs> so thank you so much, Naveen. This has been such a great conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all your experiences very generously with us. Uh, do you want to tell us where people can find you if they want to reach out to you? Yes, I am on LinkedIn every day. So I'm pretty active at, in posting my thoughts and experiences um, and I have a website, NaveenGoyleMD.com, which has some free resources, uh, a link to my book, which I wrote about my story and about being an underdog. And then I'm starting to build some free courses, which are on there as well. So you can find me on a, a few of those places and hope to connect mm -hmm. and um, relate to a lot of you. Awesome. I'm sure a lot of people will really relate to this conversation in many ways. So thank you so much again. And here's to the underdogs. Cheers to the underdog. Thank you for what you do. <laughs> Thank you, Naveen. That's the end of the episode, but you and I can keep talking. If you have a lot of expertise and deep knowledge, but you're not sharing it, you're not setting yourself up for growth. I teach you how to be your most impactful self on camera or on stage so you can open doors for your business through building your personal brand. Find out how at www.speakasaleader.com. That's speakasaleader.com. And if you liked listening to this episode, I would really appreciate it if you could rate us on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform that you're listening on so that more people can discover us. See you in the next episode. Till then, speak fearlessly. Speak fearlessly.